0: Be
1: continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. a soldier going into war, you expect things to happen. This was a Christmas parade. How do you wrap your mind around that?
2: Six dead, 60 hurt when the Waukesha Christmas parade turns into a mass casualty on Main Street. It looks like she turned around from hearing the commotion and was struck directly in the chest by the grill of the vehicle and, and thrown 20 or 30 feet. Prosecutors say Daryl Brooks used a red Ford escape to cause the chaos. It is heinous, horrific violence, and there's no way that he should ever be released. Now, a deeper look at the system that got us here and the records missing from the story. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda.
0: Hey, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, December 2nd. Today, we're talking about Waukesha. On Sunday, November 21st, police say a man named Daryl Brooks Jr. used his SUV to plow through the Waukesha Christmas Parade on Main Street. So by this point, you've probably heard the main details about what happened, including the fact that several of the victims were children. Brian, our job in these situations as investigative reporters is to not only get as much information as we can, but also to see how it fits into a bigger picture. And that's what you've really been devoted to over the last few weeks since this happened. So as you started digging into who Daryl Brooks is, what did you find?
2: Well, you know, I want to step back for a moment because, Amanda... When you work in this business, we see a lot of, and hear a lot of and cover a lot of dark stuff. But there are certain things that stand out as moments where you go, number one, I don't care if I'm on shift right now or not. I want to be a part of that because this is too important. And one of those was 9-11. Um, this is another one. And there are only a handful throughout my career who've that have really gripped me where I said, I need to be a part of that right now. And it was a Sunday and I was at home and I started hearing about what had happened. Initially, we didn't know what the casualty list was going to look like. We just knew someone had driven straight through a holiday parade. And as an investigative reporter, one of the best things I can bring to the table is the ability to begin backgrounding what led up to this. Um, And we didn't know who the suspect was, but it didn't take long before word started to leak out. Um, Law enforcement sources had given one of our uh, reporters an idea of who they believed the suspect was and before it was even announced, I was looking at the history of Daryl Brooks.
0: And that's important because before we're even, oh, there are many times when we hear a name and we're not ready to report it for whatever reason, right? We need additional confirmation. Uh, it's just not ready to take to air yet. But that doesn't mean we're not working on things in the background. In fact, that time is often some of our most valuable
2: Well, and I want to point out that there were a lot of people on social media. This was one of those cases because it grabbed immediate national and international attention where the social media warriors did actually a a pretty incredible job of digging up information. Unfortunately, with all of the correct information is a lot of incorrect information. And it's not always easy to separate what is right and what is wrong, what's rumor and what's fact. And and someone was tweeting at me saying, why aren't you guys reporting that it's Daryl Brooks? Or you're trying to hide this. And my response was, we're going to get it right instead of getting it first. And so what we did, if people may from the outside think they haven't used his name, so they're not doing anything. In fact, Sunday night, I stayed up Until the wee hours, my wife was actually at the keyboard with me for a while, sort of pointing out things as well. She became sort of a a, a co investigator that night. But we tried to find out everything we could about Daryl Brooks. And what stood out immediately, it wasn't hard to find, unfortunately, was that if this turns out to be the guy, he was just released from jail. And he was just released from jail with two pending felonies on a pretty low bond. And when I saw that, I turned and I looked at my wife and I said, This is going to be bad. Not that it wasn't already bad, but we hadn't yet heard what the casualty list was going to sound like. Pretty soon we started to hear there are fatalities. We don't know how many. And and as that word started to filter out, I'm finding out more and more about the history of Daryl Brooks, someone who had not just a long criminal history, but a violent criminal history, because we hear about a lot of offenders who've been in and out of jail or prison a number of times. But his offenses were violent domestic violence, using his vehicle as a weapon, shooting a gun at family members. And so this was someone who clearly posed a threat to the community before the parade. And of course, the worst happened that night.
0: Well, and as you pointed out in a story, I believe the next day or or the day after, the days are all kind of running together in my head at this point. It wasn't even the first time that month that he had run someone over with that car,
2: That's a pretty outrageous statement and it's why I used it in a couple of my stories because when you say this isn't even the first time this guy's run someone over in his life, that's bad enough. I mean, he's just run through a parade. Why would someone do that? Well, it sounds like this is someone with a history of using his car as a weapon, but it wasn't like he did that five years ago. He did it a few weeks ago. And was let back out of jail. So he had used the same car. I I think that was what I was maybe most incredulous about. He used a car as a weapon, was arrested and charged with a felony, got back out, got the same car, and went and mowed down all these people in a parade and changed lives forever. Um, It's hard to fathom that this happened. And so as I found out more of that background, I knew This next week is going to be a busy one.
0: Well, and since then, I mean, you found records that uh, indicate that he and and they don't go into detail, but they say he wasn't receiving treatment for a sickness that he had. And then his mother released a statement to media outlets saying he wasn't given the help he needed. The, The implication of that seems to be that there's at least an allegation that there were some mental health things going on.
2: It's become pretty clear at this point that he is someone who, at its, at one point in his life, and it sounds like very early in his life, been diagnosed as bipolar. He said as much in a letter to a circuit court judge years ago. Um, his mom, in his mo- in her most recent letter to the media, also said that he had dealt with mental illness. She seemed to cast a lot of the blame for this event on a system that did not deal with his mental illness very well. But And, and there may be some truth to that, there may not, but the reality is a lot of people with bipolar disorder and mental illness don't have anything like the kind of criminal record Daryl Brooks has. So that may be an issue that's in the background here, but it certainly does not become some sort of automatic excuse. I do think it was interesting the day after the event, I went to his mother's house in uh, Milwaukee on North 19th Street, and it is also the address where he in court records is listed as living. Um, So We went there to speak to his mom for a couple of reasons. Number one, as we later found out, we didn't know this at the time, we later found out that SUV is registered to his mother, Don Woods. So when he gets out after using her car as a weapon, she let him keep driving her car. And we haven't been able to ask her about that. Uh, But what we did know at the time is that he had a no contact order. For three people because of the event two years earlier or a year and a half earlier when he had shot at his nephew. He, his nephew got into an argument or he got into an argument with him inside his mother's house. Went outside, chased the nephew and his nephew's girlfriend out. And as they tried to pull away in the nephew's car, he fired a gun at them. The mom was home as well. So police issued a no contact order for Don Woods, Anaji Brooks, his nephew, and another woman who was with Anaji. And so he's not even legally supposed to be near her. But it was Dawn Brooks, his mom, who bailed him out. She paid the thousand dollars to get him out of jail just days before the Waukesha parade. So we went to look for her. And we'll talk more about that in in a little bit. But what I thought was interesting is I wanted to talk to neighbors. What do you know? Did you see him coming and going? Um, Do you remember the shooting from a year and a half ago which happened here? And I only came across one woman who would talk to me and she said she didn't know the family very well. Um, She knew of them. But she made a comment about how when people get out of jail, if they don't get the proper mental health treatment, this kind of thing can happen. I thought she was shooting from the hip. Um, I now look back and think she may have known more than she was letting on because, of course, that question of mental illness is is coming to the forefront. I have said it and I'll predict it here. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I would not be surprised if there is a request by the defense for a competency hearing, um, at least for a doctor's review, uh, because of that mental health illness. And the fact that records show it wasn't being treated, I would be surprised if they didn't at least seek a doctor's review. We haven't heard that yet.
0: Let's talk about that bail situation because the, I think there's been a lot of talk about that and a, a lot of misunderstanding about how bail in Wisconsin works. So how how is it supposed to work and then how did it work in this case or not work, depending
2: on who you talk to? If you look at the Wisconsin Constitution and the way it's written, it is it is pretty clear that Bail, the, the primary purpose of bail is to ensure that an offender returns to court. So the mechanism for that is cash. You set a dollar amount that you hope or as the court or the criminal justice system will ensure that offender comes back for their court appearances. Because before a person has a trial, before they are convicted, they are under, you know, the United States Constitution. They are innocent until they have been proven guilty. So you're dealing with a person who is legally considered innocent. Therefore, what you're really trying to do is just to make sure they have the incentive to show up for their court dates. However, for many, many years and for a long time, there has been understanding that protection of the public is a factor to be considered. Judges often do consider protection of the public as a factor. And there's some dispute as to whether or not the Constitution already allows for that. But it's not as explicit as some would like it to be. Um, and because of that, that returning to court aspect sort of has gets the greater weight First of all, you talk about procedurally. The prosecutor will actually recommend a bail. There's a pretrial assessment that is done. In this case, in Milwaukee County, it's done by a private vendor called Justice Point. And they have a person who will look at the person's criminal history, other factors, their family history, connections in the area, employment and so on. And they their, their history of showing up for court appointments and, and for pretrial services appointments. And they will suggest what their risk level is not to show up for court and what their risk level is to commit a new crime. And then the prosecutor will use that information to determine what amount of bail they should recommend, and then a court commissioner or judge will determine whether or not to agree with that or set it higher or lower. The defense will argue their point as well. In this case, we know, and it was the day after the incident occurred, the day after the parade, that Milwaukee County DA did something rather extraordinary. He, uh, John Chisholm came out the next day and issued uh, a statement indicating that when Daryl Brooks was released on a thousand dollars bail after attempting or being charged with attempting to run over his ex-girlfriend, the mother of his child, on November 2nd. The bail on November 5th was set at a thousand dollars and and D.A. Chisholm said that was inappropriately low and he was launching an internal investigation. Now, it wasn't John Chisholm who, who made that recommendation. It was one of his assistant district attorney's carol manchester
0: but the buck stops with him because he's the one it's who runs office. that office
2: absolutely and and i think he was well aware at that point in getting out in front of it because dhism and, and there's been a lot of criticism that has come out since this time that he has long championed the idea of re- releasing more offenders pre-trial of policies that allow people while they are awaiting trial to be out in the community, going to work, you know, being there for their families and being productive members of society. So some looked at that as a uh, and I'm not using these words, but the criticism has been that it was sort of maybe a a squishy liberal policy of wanting to let people out of jail. And here was this egregious example of someone being let out on low bail who harmed so many people. That's one of the big criticisms that that politicians and and, uh, you know, right wing talk show hosts and those from the right are now lobbying. At the DA, But he came out first and said, I think this was inappropriately low and I'm going to look into it. That still leaves the question of the court commissioner, in this case, Cedric Cornwall, who still had to make the decision to go along with it. We've not been able to reach Commissioner Cornwall for comment on that. I've tried him at Every phone number I can find, every email address I can find, and I even reached out to the chief judge in Milwaukee and said, could you please pass a message along? Uh, she, uh, she did acknowledge receiving that email, but I have not heard back from the commissioner.
0: And part of the reason we want to talk to the commissioner so much is you got the records that show the justice point right up for Daryl Brooks, and it appears to put him in a, a category that I think most people would call high risk.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an understatement, to be honest with you. When you see this pretrial risk assessment, assessment, and I will say this, a lot of people have really come out firing at Justice Point because they are the pretrial supervision services provider. And so you think, well, they're supervising. It was their job to keep the community safe. Justice Point doesn't really have a lot of uh, weight in terms of the ability to prevent offenders pre-trial from re-offending, what their job is to do is to make sure they show up for appointments, or at least that they know about court appointments. Um, Before the pandemic, they would do drug tests and in-person meetings. Now, even the most high-risk offenders are only supervised over the phone. So in this case, even though Daryl Brooks was a level five, which is the highest level, level five supervision offender or or defendant, um, he was only, uh, you know, appearing by phone for his appointments. But in this risk assessment, they did warn, correctly so, we now know, that he was a high risk to commit a new crime and that he had a history of violent crime. They also indicated that he was a pretty high risk not to show up for court because he had been charged with bail jumping in the past. So on a scoring system of 1 to 6, 6 being the highest for failure to appear or likelihood that he wouldn't, he was a 4. But on a scale of 1 to 6 for the uh, likelihood he would commit a new crime while he was out on release, he was a six, the highest risk possible. And and if you've seen our stories, you've seen there's sort of a color coded chart they have, the, the higher level of failure to appear and highest level of new crime falls into a dark red category, which just signals this is someone who poses a big risk.
0: So then the question, of course, is we have this write up. We have his whole history, which is accessible to the people making the decision So what happened? And that's when we would go and say, "Okay, well, let's look at what happened in this court hearing and see what the discussion was. But even that had and it's probably understated to say roadblocks, because when you went to go find those records, that's when it became clear those records don't exist.
2: There's an awful lot in Daryl Brooks' criminal history to look at, but clearly in this case, the moment that everyone in the country and around the world is really seizing upon is why was his bail set at $1,000 with two pending felonies, violent felonies, this high-risk assessment? What were they thinking? So you'd like to hear, be a fly on the wall at that bail hearing, at his intake hearing on November 5th. 16 days before the parade to say, what did the D.A. actually say? What did what did Carol Manchester, the assistant district attorney, actually say? What did Court Commissioner Cedric Cornwall actually say? Did they discuss it at all? Was this a rubber stamp? Was there much discussion? Did they go into detail and say, well, you know, I think, you know, I hear from the defense and I think he's fine. We don't know what was stated. We don't know if they talked about it his most recent violent offenses. Maybe the docket was so full that day, Commissioner Cornwall was just shooing him right on through and just rubber stamp whatever the DA recommended. We don't know, so we wanted a transcript. We wanted either a transcript or a digital recording of the hearing. And typically, in court hearings, all court hearings in Milwaukee County and across the state, there's either a court reporter. You've seen them. They type on kind of little machines. They have... Uh, Uh, you know, particular training and skills to very quickly record what people are saying because it's hard to type that fast. So they've got specialties and ways of doing that. So you either have a court reporter live transcribing or you have this digital audio recording. And because there's a shortage of court reporters in Wisconsin, Milwaukee County has moved toward using more and more of these digital recordings. And in particular, in intake hearings, intake and bail type hearings, which we now have later learned are subject to review by a circuit court judge anyway so they're considered sort of lower priority in terms of getting a word-for-word transcript but they do record them and those transcripts like in a case like this can come in very handy and be extremely important in dissecting what happened but when we made the request we heard back that no recordings exist for the afternoon of november 5th which is when daryl brooks had come through for that bill hearing
0: what happened
2: well, that was the question we had when I first broke this story on, what was it? Was that Monday? I'm, I'm just losing <laughs> track. Of we're, we're recording this Thursday morning. It might have been Monday I, or Tuesday.
0: Tuesday, maybe. I think
2: it was Tuesday. Tuesday, you're right. So on Tuesday, we got the word from uh, District Court Administrator Holly Zabluski that there were no recordings because of technical issues. And I immediately asked, what technical issues? What went wrong? And how often does this happen? Is this a common thing or did it just happen in this one really high-profile case that wasn't at the time, but certainly is now. Which and is quite
0: the coincidence.
2: It's raised eyebrows among those who certainly— certainly it's the kind of fodder for those who would like to uh, think of conspiracy theories. But, you know, sometimes technical things happen. That's true. I wanted to know what happened. Did someone forget to press the button? Did something go wrong with the recording? I mean, we we work in the news business. We've dealt with technical glitches. It happens all the time. But I wanted to know what really happened.
0: Right. Was it human error? Was it a technology error?
2: So the response I got yesterday, and again, we're recording this Thursday, we'll be releasing it Thursday, December 2nd. So on December 1st, I got a response from uh, the district court administrator saying that they do not monitor those digital recordings because it's a court commissioner hearing that under Supreme Court rules is optional in terms of a word for word verbatim transcript. So they do it as a matter of policy, but it's a little lower priority than maybe the others because they've just got so much to do. So they give the court clerk the responsibility of turning on and off the recording, of checking in to monitor and make sure there's audio, but the clerk's got other stuff to do. The commissioner's clerk is doing all sorts of things during an intake hearing, so they're not live monitoring And As it turns out, it wasn't even until we made this request that they went back and discovered, oops, there's no recording not only from that afternoon, but they don't have any recordings on November 7th or November 8th either. We don't know if any of those cases will become pertinent or matter, but this was obviously a big concern for the Milwaukee County court system, and they have already said that they will be making changes to ensure that these kinds of things don't happen again. But for those who want to know what happened in this bail hearing, it's too late. That information is lost forever.
0: Well, and that sticks out to me because uh, a little more than a year ago, I had done some reporting on... Uh, court records when, you know, pandemic, everything was being live streamed. And the courts had a policy of they, w- they would live stream through YouTube, which then keeps the video for you automatically. And there was a policy of going back and deleting those videos after, which creates an open records question. There There are a lot of things going on. But the response I kept getting from people who work in the courts was kind of don't worry about it. you can get a transcript. These videos don't matter. Just get the transcript. Well, this is the exact reason that there were concerns about creating videos of court proceedings and then deleting them because now the the, the safety mechanism is gone. and transcripts, sometimes even if the recording does work, they're not always legible. It's technology. it's prone to error. It isn't always going to work. So what's your backup, especially in cases like this, where you need to be able to go back and see what happened, especially if there's an internal investigation going on?
2: Well, Amanda, I asked that very question. I asked, what about YouTube and live stream recordings? Um, Why aren't they preserved? And isn't this the perfect example of why that would be an appropriate kind of redundancy a backup when the transcript fails and the response i got was that Milwaukee County has not only not decided to maintain those recordings they went the other direction they now don't use YouTube anymore they use a live stream platform called DAcast or Docast i'm not sure how it's pronounced but it's D A C A S T it live streams court hearings but it does not record them. So they are live streamed and as soon as they're done, they're gone. It's like watching over the air television without a, a recording device. It's it Once it, it, it's been broadcast or it's been streamed, it disappears. So they're not even – they aren't deleting anything. So they're no longer actively deleting a record that exists. They've actually just moved to a platform that doesn't record in the first so, place. So to be so, clear,
0: <laughs> instead of continuing to use the platform – that automatically created the video and takes no additional effort to create the video, they've instead decided to shift to a completely different platform so that it won't even create the video in the first place. That seems like really going out of your way to make sure there is no... It's not like, oh, this is an easier way to do it. They already were doing it one way, and now it's a deliberate effort to do it in a way that does not keep a recording.
2: I'll step from reporter to commentator for a moment, which we can do sometimes on this podcast, and say, it sure looks that way. It looks like they... We just didn't want to have to deal with a tricky question of well gosh are we deleting records now and I think a lot of judges didn't like having to manipulate both zoom and YouTube I do think there's some legitimacy to the idea that it was cumbersome to have zoom for the parties that were appearing YouTube for the public to view and then the issue of what do I do with the recordings this da cast system allows them to live stream from one link Every time they go on and it's over and they don't have to mess with it. But, but we I do also think there... know
0: from public records that some judges were concerned about being mocked. If right. Yeah. They didn't data... want the
2: public to have access to these videos because they could live on the Internet after that and they could they could cut that up and they could do anything they want with it well that's true of any recording of any public meeting anywhere and if and if it's you know you could go to i I could pull down city council meetings right now and i could make fun or mock the city council people in a video that i cut up and put on the internet you could do it anybody could do it you could and if you do something with it that's inappropriate unfair unethical illegal you can be held accountable in some way judges apparently just didn't want to be part of that world And uh, and so they were more willing to restrict easy access to those things. And in this case now, more importantly, restrict the ability to have a backup system for what happened in a hearing when the recording goes wrong. So, you know, and again, I, I, I say I'm stepping into commentary. I'm sure the court system has and the members of it have their own opinions on why and whether or not that's appropriate. But we can say for certain they took an active step to make it less likely that there would be uh, a video record of hearings after the fact.
0: And we should also point out that as of Thursday morning, December 2nd, Chisholm, the, the district attorney, has not answered reporter questions about what happened. He put out his statement, but he has not fielded those questions as of this point.
2: That's right. And, and last week, I spoke briefly to uh Chief Deputy District Attorney Kent Lovern, uh, who was the second in command under John Chisholm in the DA's office, and I asked him, you know, will your boss speak to me? Will he sit down and do an interview? And he said uh, this was actually last Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, and he said he's not here. He will sit down. He's going to talk to the media next week. He even asked me, are you looking for a press conference with everyone or do you want a one-on-one interview and of course i said i would prefer a one-on-one interview i can ask more questions that way um and he said we'll get back to you we'll let you know we're still evaluating um lovern did tell me at the time that one of the things they were considering was trying to be respectful of funerals that may be occurring uh for people who had been killed in the Waukesha parade incident. And they didn't want to be insensitive uh, in sort of, uh, you know, the the district attorney coming out and and trying to put the spotlight on himself when that was going on. I know others have looked at that and said that was just a way to uh, delay uh, how long it would be before he had to go before reporters and face their questions. But instead of agreeing to an interview this week, which was the suggestion that was made last Wednesday, the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors, um, Judiciary Committee decided to call the district attorney before them for a public hearing where they can grill him over what happened in this case and what the bail procedures are. Um, and that's going to be happening as I recorded the, we're recording Thursday morning. That's going to be happening Thursday afternoon, December 2nd, one thirty. So you may be hearing this and that may have already happened. This may already be out on the news. I'll be covering it. So watch for my stories, five, six, nine, ten, 10 on Fox six news. Um, but the DA will answer questions Here's the problem for journalists. It's a virtual meeting. And in virtual meetings, we can't, there's no public meeting where we're allowed to come into the meeting and ask questions. What we can do in a traditional meeting is, and you know this, Amanda, because you've done it, we can show up before a meeting and intercept a public official as they're arriving before they sit down at the conference table or at their their seat uh, and ask them a few questions. Or when the meeting's over, we can approach them before they leave and ask a few questions and sometimes they're reluctant because they don't want to face them but once a camera and a reporter are there they'll stop and answer questions after all it looks awful bad to run away from a reporter who's trying to ask legitimate questions that the public wants answers to
0: and that's key because if they if they do run away that's that's an it's a very uncomfortable part of this job but it's an important one because you see how that person reacts so even if they don't stop and answer our questions. That process is important because you, the taxpayer, deserve to know how the person you're paying and the person who's making decisions on your behalf that affect you, you deserve to know how they respond to those. And questions. I think it's
2: important that people know here that we don't do that as a first resort. It's not something because we're trying to make sensational TV. It's a last resort. And we do it. After we have sent emails and made phone calls and requested sit down interviews and they've declined or ignored our requests.
0: And often spelled it out. Hey, this is what's going to happen if we don't do the interview at, at a time of your choosing with the nice lighting and the time to prep for the questions.
2: Ironically enough, Amanda, you just did that with uh, the the Wauwatosa School Board for a story that you're still working on uh, follow ups to, which is the uh, the the AVID um, program in Wauwatosa schools. We've talked about it on this podcast. And in that case, no one would talk to you. The superintendent, the school board, nobody. So you showed up at a school board meeting and lo and behold, of all people, you ended up interviewing uh, Wauwatosa School Board member Sean Rowland, who happens to be one of the members of the committee that is calling John Chisholm before the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors. And so he's on both the county board and the Wauwatosa school board. And he knows the importance of or how it can work when journalists approach a public official, because you actually provided him information about the avid program. He didn't know which prompted him to take action in this case, We'd like to ask the district attorney questions, and I'm not saying he won't eventually sit down, but up until this point, more than a week and a half after the event, more than a week and a half after he put that letter out saying it was an inappropriately low bail, he has not been available for reporter questions, and he won't be available for reporter questions today because it's a virtual meeting unless it happens to be after that meeting. The last word I got from Kent Lovern, his number two, was we will see how that meeting goes and evaluate things after that. So, um, you know, we still don't know for sure that, that Chisholm is going to willingly agree to an interview. Um, and, and this is a meeting I would have shown up at in the past to ask those questions, but it's virtual and I can't.
0: And to be clear, the public being able to make public comment and, and view the meeting and the county supervisors being able to ask questions, those are all important parts of the process. But the journalist questions Are also an important part of the process. Not because we're nosy, not because it's our turn. It's because we have the time. It is our job to sit there and go through all the information. So we have questions that are informed by information that that maybe other people haven't had time to go through because it's not their full-time job to do that. Our job is to ask questions on behalf of the public using information that the public may not always be able to easily access. So that's why it's important for us to be able to go in and to ask those questions. And it's nothing against virtual hearings. In some cases, a virtual hearing can increase accessibility because more people can watch it live. But when... It is not accompanied by accessibility for reporters, for the press. That's when we run into some accountability issues and, quite frankly, sometimes some democracy issues.
2: And the public is – I'll point out the public is – you'll probably hear this after it's happened anyway. The public can speak at this. They can register to speak in this uh, particular judiciary hearing. They can tell the board. They can tell John Chisholm what they think of the bail situation here that doesn't mean the da will have to answer anything they say
0: in fact it's usually pointed out in those meetings that there is respond. no or sometimes they can't sometimes it sometimes it's it's up to the discretion of of the people there but there there's absolutely no obligation to respond
2: So there's obviously a lot of heat right now on the DA's office. There's a lot of people asking questions about Commissioner Cornwall and and why things went this way. We're going to find out a lot more today about what the DA has to say about all of it. My understanding is he's been doing some research and gathering examples of other things throughout the system as to how the bail system works. I I would imagine he's going to put together a defense of his overall policies uh, while still uh, having pointed out that this case turned out to be an inappropriately low bail. We'll see what he says. We'll see what the board has to say. um, but there's a lot more to come from that. In the end, we still have, and nothing's going to change the fact that six people are dead and dozens more injured. There are still children in the hospital. I mean, this is a, just a, a horrible situation, and, and something's going to take a long, long time for the community to recover from. And that's as good a time as any for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we answer a question we have not prepared for. And here to ask us that question is once again our executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah.
1: Hello. Um, let me start before I get into my question this week with uh, something I realized today. So every week uh, I post these podcasts, publish them to our website, foxsixnow.com, uh, in addition to obviously publishing them on the platforms where people can download them. Um, and so every week I have to request a graphic that coincides with the episode number and the title of the podcast. And today I requested episode number 199. Wow. So that's exciting. So next week will be the big 200. So um, we should probably plan a party or something. Um, but anyway, so that was just kind of exciting. So if you don't download these off of your favorite podcasting platform, uh, also tell your friends fox and you'll find it there
0: subscribe now to get our 200th episode
1: that's right
2: so this is 199 that's 200 next week yes next week. Okay. correct all right
1: yep 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 wow, 200, um 200
2: okay. because we've done most of them like well Co- most of them since the pandemic started obviously oh, correct so in the last year and a half correct
1: yeah wow oh, oh wait yeah i would say probably half if not more than half so that's exciting anyway all right today's question um again i know that our editor dave has talked about how my open record or off the record questions often double the time of the podcast. This may be one of those days. Um, So here's the question. What thing or something from your childhood um, that if you said it to a young person, child, today, now, they would either not believe you, they would go, what? You had to do what? Um, or, Or they would just think is like, not the truth. Um, and I'll give a, an example, because I've seen a couple of these. Like um, That if you wanted to watch a video, a movie, um, that you'd have to make a trip to the video store, to a Blockbuster, to a Mom video place, and rent VHS tapes, if that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to watch a movie. And sometimes you'd get a free popcorn with a rental. And it would be great. And then you'd have to rewind them and bring them back in four or days or whatever so again the the kids kids these days (laughs) um you know they they click buttons my kids freak out when they have to sit through some ads or commercials and I always back in my day we had to get everything done in the commercial breaks (laughs) so and then race back to the tv yes because you didn't you couldn't miss it there's no pause there's no rewind but you couldn't go (laughs) yes yeah, so you hold it, hold it, hold it till the commercial break. Anyway, so... I never thought about
2: that, but actually the fact that there's the whole digital ad, like, you know, we have, we have the Hulu, but not the one that's paid high enough where you don't get ads, so we we don't have the ad-free version. And, and those things will stay there until you're... I mean, they're not... You know, you can leave when they're playing, I guess, but if you pause, you come back, why did I pause? Because they're still there. Um, but yeah, no, you, that was bathroom break time when we were yeah. younger.
1: So I will say one other thing is that... Um, that phones, we used to just pick up and go, hello? Like, from my house. I didn't have caller ID. I didn't know who was on the other line, but I picked up anyway and said, hello? Like, like I don't know who this could be. It
0: could be anything. My mom so. trained us all to answer the phone. Hello, St. Hilaire residence. Oh. This is Amanda. <laughs> of course you part Because I would answer the phone and people would think I was my mom, so it was like identify myself, but I still, like, like it's like the you'd had to, you very specifically ID yourself when answering the phone and that would not be a thing anymore
2: when we do all of these you know I uh boy you know back in my day kind of things which I'll probably do the most of because I'm the dean of this open record staff um, <laughs> I don't think anyone's really experienced teenage phone use Properly, if they haven't had to stretch the coiled cord all the way through the house yep. around a corner behind a yes. door and sit right up next to the door where you're chained and you can't move yes. because it's the only way you can get privacy on that phone and call. And
0: when you have to get off the phone because someone needs to use the
1: internet, internet, you'd pick up the phone and you'd hear.
2: <laughs> I what's funny, though, is when you said like things people wouldn't believe you had to do. What what I always find really remarkable these days is that, you know, since kids younger and younger have phones and, and often for good reason. Hey, I need to be able to reach you if you're doing this or that. Um, when I was a kid, we had uh, and I was very fortunate. We had season passes to Six Flags over Mid-America. This was the one uh, just outside St. Louis. And so we'd go to Six Flags and my parents would you know, hang out, ride rides with us. But my best friend would go along and or my brother and we'd say, hey, we're going to go ride some of the fast roller coasters and they'd want to go watch a show. And so, OK, you know, meet us at this time at this place or whatever. And then maybe you'd forget or you'd be late because we were in a ride and you wouldn't meet. And what? The only way to find someone in that situation, to find your kid, was you'd constantly hear it over the loudspeaker. Someone went to guest relations. <laughs> and there was nothing worse than being in an amusement park and hearing if Brian and Tom could please report to guest relations. And I, you know, it didn't happen often. And my parents were pretty trusting and we, we, we were pretty good about meeting up, but I just, that was the only way people could find each other. And so I'm sure I, I hate to say it, this is sort of going to sound dark, but it was probably a heyday for kidnapping children because there was no easy way to make contact um, and, and find out someone was gone. You just assumed, well, we'll meet up at some point, And hours later you go, Oh, huh, they're not coming back. Um, it was very different uh, then. Now you just, you know, you text them or call them and they ignore you, but you can see it was red, so you know everything's fine.
0: <laughs> I mean, going off of it, I think just the idea now we take for granted that you can just get in touch with anyone at any given point. And, you know, growing up, it was like you, you had to agree to meet at a certain spot if my mom was going to pick me up. And you both hope you're on time. My mom never was. My mom didn't get a phone until really late in the game. Like she did not get a cell phone until really late because she did not quote want people bothering her all day. So it also (laughs) meant we experienced some of those child things much later in life. I'm still scarred from when I was in high school. I was at all five of my brothers played Little League Baseball, each on a different team. So spring was just a crazy time in our house. I was at the field. I had like two games to watch and they were like side-by-side field. So I'm like pivoting back and forth to watch my brothers play baseball. And so the youngest one... His team finishes it up while I'm watching, like, another brother. And unbeknownst to me, my mom had arrived at the baseball field, picked Paul up, and taken him home. No phone. No way to communicate this. So I'm freaking out. I am sobbing. They locked down the baseball field because I can't find my brother, and someone may have kidnapped him. And then we find out, like, an hour later that he was at home with my mother, who had no phone. So that actually inspired her to get a phone. But even now to this day, I've never heard anyone as annoyed when the phone <laughs> rings as Sylvie St. Hilaire. Just with this, uh, who's calling me? <laughs> um, because she just, she is, still has is no desire. So I feel like I experienced some of those childhood uh, situations a lot longer than other people of the same age. Um, even just the idea of needing to record something on a tape if you wanted to watch it and you weren't going to be home. And then well, you so had tapes. to hope no yeah. one – you had to hope no one taped over your – like I I had I recorded like I, I wanted to – there was a Disney on Ice presentation on like a Sunday night. And I had like set everything up and recorded it. And then like one of my brothers taped over it to watch like some sports, something. That frequently happened. Um, But I mean, our jobs used to be a lot harder. And I didn't experience this in my professional career. You know, I mean, I did some tape to tape editing, but that was, you know, um, that was kind of the tail end of it. But I mean, I even just think about how easy it is for us to background someone now. And the kind of manual work that that used to take. I think that's a lot of, a you know, back in my day fodder we used
2: to use a a physical reverse directory at my first television job and that wasn't even all that long ago it was the late 90s um but i I, I have to say there's a phrase that i used one day and my kids my son i think was the one who responded what i said i jokingly about something be kind rewind (laughs) and he said what (laughs) and if you don't know what that means uh, anyone who had to rent videos from a video store knows that VHS tapes, you had to rewind them. It always had the reminder, be kind, rewind, because if you returned your tape to the video store and it wasn't rewound, you get charged extra because they want to have – because or else somebody's got to sit there. Some you know minimum wage workers got to sit there with <laughs> 20 tapes on the rewind machine to get them ready for the next people or, or whatever it is. Um. So, yeah, I mean you had to re- – oh, you watched a movie? You had to take it back? And then you had to rewind? wind it so yeah um you know now you just go on to whatever you know fandango or netflix or and it's there
0: i have one more and it used to be that when i wrote papers for school well one we had the option of either handwriting or typing our papers but two we had really strict restrictions on only two of your sources can be from the internet because it's inherently unreliable for information um and that was, I mean, literally, like all your other sources had to be physical books. And I, I can't imagine a world in which my kids will have those requirements, or that someone will ever tell them, "Yeah, it's an option to handwrite your
2: paper." My last one, travelers checks. Did your family ever take travelers checks on a vacation? No. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah
2: I remember my mom before we went to Florida. She'd have to get the travelers checks because yeah, three hundred dollars you know, in traveler's,
1: travelers checks. Yeah. Yeah,
2: and uh, so. <laughs> Uh, I don't even think a lot of people know what a traveler's check is anymore, but it was basically the only way you could sort of have money that was protected if it got lost or or, or whatever it was. I don't even remember what really the – I was too young to know why we needed them. I just know we needed traveler's checks before we left. (laughs) Um, they looked but, so
1: official. I mean, they were official. It was actual money. But, like, it's you know still, what? you know.
2: Sarah, what you have done with this one question is is you have lost our entire Gen Z audience. We just turned them off. <laughs> They're just like, okay, okay a bunch of old people. Or maybe we're
0: attracting them because they want to know what it was
1: like in the olden days, <laughs> in the 1900s.
2: <laughs> we're going to title this episode, My Day. Yeah. <laughs> If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on open record or an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com.
0: As always, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuto, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith, who once again managed to double the runtime of this podcast episode. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we'll be back next week.